What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Everybody, I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Where have all the doves gone? It's just hawks and more hawks at the Fed lately. So how much higher will they go? How quickly will they get there? We'll talk to one guest who thinks a half-point hike is likely next meeting, as J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says a soft landing is still a possibility. Plus, with the reopening underway, is now the time to invest in China. Just heard what Weiss said about it. Foreign policy experts are on one side. Most investors are on the other. We're going to speak to one longtime China watcher who really surprised us the last time he was on. And Netflix cutting prices in several countries as a big rival gets ready to report what you need to watch and how to position on that and two other big names in earnings exchange. First, the markets, though. Dom Chu watching those numbers. We are watching those numbers. And earlier today, Kelly, I was here this morning. The markets were as green as your pantsuit right now, but they are not that way right now. If you take a look at what's happening, we are red across the board, marginally so, but it's still 32,889 for the Dow Industrials at about 150 points, half of 1%. The S&P 500, I want you to key on this, 39,85 is where we are. A level that some traders are watching is 39,80. That represents the 50-day average price of the S&P 500 over the last 50 days on a rolling basis. Below that is 39.40, the 200-day moving average, so to speak. So right now, we're just about four points above the 50-day, down one-tenth of 1%. To give you some context about the trading range, at the highs of the session, we were up 37 points in the S&P at the lows, down roughly 22, so tilting towards the lower end of that range. The Nasdaq Composite, 11,485, down about two-tenths of 1% there. So keep an eye on some of those key levels to watch. Also watching what's happening with the value of the U.S. dollar. The dollar index is actually ticking higher, one-tenth of one percent. It may seem modest, but 104.69 means that over the short term, since the February lows, we are up roughly 4% in the value of the dollar. That's pretty big for a currency. But mind you, since last fall, we are still down about 8% from those highs. But it's still, keep an eye on that. Interest rates moving higher might be giving the dollar a little bit of a bid here. Watch the dollar index. And the stock of the day, It's one of the things that's helping to keep things a little bit more stable right now. Technology stalwart chip maker NVIDIA up 12.5%, better than expected results. More optimism about artificial intelligence. It's the buzzword that's got a lot of people thinking to themselves, what's the next play? But NVIDIA right now showing some real signs of life. Big move higher, NVIDIA. Back over over to you, Ken. And by the way, Dom, triggering a lot of talk about whether it should replace Intel in the Dow. Uh, So here's the thing. I mean, it's already much more of a valuable company. The question then becomes how much weight does it have with a $233 price tag? We'll see if the index guys at S&P Dow Jones yeah. tinker with that It idea. would boost the tech presence, but I think Intel, like Robert Hum was saying, contributes half a percent to the, it's almost irrelevant to the Dow at this point. I mean, you could say the same thing about Walmart, but then you can bring into that whole price versus market cap dynamic. Uh, all, right, all right, fair. All right, Dom, thank you. <laughs> you got it. Easy. Uh, Dom Chu. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon sitting down for a special interview with our Jim Cramer earlier on. Here's what he said about the strength of the economy moments ago on halftime. We always have a recession playbook. But you might do a certain credit. Well, you're breaking do... it out right here. Say it again? Breaking out the recession playbook right now. Not really. No. Right, right now, the U.S. economy, this is the contradiction here. Okay. The U.S. economy right now is doing quite well. 
not really on the recessionary playbook. Now, he did say there's more uncertainty than usual ahead, but also that a soft landing is still a possibility. Now, you can watch a full interview with Jim on Mad Money tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Joining me now to discuss, Mark Smith is Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors. Jason Trennert is here. He's Chairman and CEO of Strategus, a Baird company. CNBC Senior Economics Reporter Steve Leisman here on set as well. This is big. This is very big. And I don't know where to start. Steve, what jumped out to you? Well, I have been thinking about whether or not we're really going to have a recession and what the basis of that call is. And it's it's all on the come. There is really not very much data other than there's two pieces of data that are the, the, the what you rest the argument on. The inverted yield curve is one and then the Fed hiking rates is another. You, you have had a slowdown in economic activity. I don't see anything too much that is outside of a normal business cycle up and down. But the idea that there's a recession is based. And so then I have to get to the question of lags. And I interviewed Bullard yesterday. He said the lags are here now, which sounds a little oxymoronic. But right. he said it's here there now. There is no lag. There's and then no I'm talking to Jason over here. And we're talking about how you might, as an investor, factor in higher interest costs into companies. And I'm back to the work that I did a couple months ago where I saw there is no cliff this year in corporate and high yield, right? Mm-hmm. The cliff is next year and the year beyond. So if the Fed ends up getting its business... Which means business, there's a lag, by the way, but go ahead. Well, that's interesting, right? It holds it off, right? right? But if the Fed gets its business done and can start to begin to reduce rates, by the time these refis roll around, we might escape it. All right. So I'm just saying it's 50-50 now, but it's a real 50-50. It's not like it's 50 because it's, it's, it's double what it normally is, so it's much worse. It's 50-50. It really is. And, Jason, I know when you look at sort of all the leading indicators, you're as worried as anybody about what's about to happen here. What, how would you answer the question about the recessionary playbook? I mean, do, we, do you need to break it out right now? I think you do. And I think, of course, it's, the, the lags are long and variable, as they say, uh, in economics. So, and it's hard to believe. A year, it seems like an attorney ago, the Fed was actually easing. The Fed was actually no, 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 actively. No, 11 months, Jason. Let's be uh, accurate. Wow. It's just 11 months ago. Right. So they were actually increasing the size of their balance sheet. I would also add to Steve's list corporate profits. I'm mm-hmm. a supply sider. I think corporate profits are the source of employment and capital spending and all the other things that go on that, that uh, create a recovery or a recession. And in my opinion, clearly corporate profits are slowing, which does not augur particularly well for, uh, for employment. So I think, you know, what I heard from Jamie Dimon, it was interesting is that it was less... Um, it was less fire and brimstone, I think, than we had heard him last year. Economic where he saw a hurricane and so on. It didn't quite sound like a hurricane. But by the same token, I think he knows just like everybody else, or like William Goldman says, you know, no one knows anything, right, from, uh, from Hollywood. And so we're all waiting, but I think the odds are good that you do get a recession later this year. Mark Smith, I know you're thinking that kind of what Steve was outlining, that maybe half a point hike is still in the cards here. Yeah, I agree with Steve. I think that at the end of the day, you know, when I talk to my clients, they're like, where, where are we right now? And you got to always go back to the Fed. We've been talking about this for over a year. And they're looking at the data, right? CPI was way above estimates. New payrolls were, were more than double, right? We're expecting 187K. We've got 517K. So if I'm looking at a plane and we're trying to do a soft landing, this thing just spiked right back up from January numbers. So if February continues what we saw in January... Um, you got to say, I, I can't say we're having a soft landing because the numbers aren't indicating that. And that's what the Fed's looking at. So that 50, point, 50 basis point uh, increase is going to be more, more and more likely 
as these numbers come in. And so I'm telling my clients, if that's the case, if we're higher for longer, then you've got to see what sectors do well in that environment. And I always point back to the banks. The financials are going to do very well in this environment, market, given it, all the different ways they can make money. And I, I want to ask everybody about that that sort of tactically. But do you think that it's just too much to, to, to extrapolate from one month's data? You know, the no, November, December were pretty awful. That was Before the January jobs report, we were all thinking, like, maybe the recession is starting now it was so bad. Real consu- I mean, consumer spending hit a wall. Manufacturing's been in a recession for months Services now. Services were negative. Service, I mean, everything was. So, yes, January was strong, Mark. But is it just offsetting some of the, the Q4 weakness that we saw? Well, listen, if I'm looking for a soft landing, I want those January numbers to not be as great as well. And the fact that they spike back up to tell you that soft landing is becoming less likely. And so, uh, again, I'm looking at the data like you all are. And if February uh, comes in similarly to what we saw in January, we got a problem. And the Fed's going to have to act aggressively. And that's what I think the market's not anticipating. Jason, real quickly, so the playbook for most investors is like their heads are going to explode because – on the one hand, we have 5% six-month Treasury bills. You know, we have corporate credit that looks tantalizing unless it's all about to default. I mean, there's, you know, there's stock valuations that some look attractive, but nothing looks attractive if, if we're heading into this down market. What, do you want to comment on that? Listen, I, I, know it sounds, uh, I know it sounds trite, but it's really all about quality, and it's about cash flows uh, and the idea that you want to be in shorter-duration stocks, which is just a fancy way of saying companies that are going to deliver money back to you, either in the form of dividends or share of purchases. Long-duration stocks, and that which Steve and I were talking about, there's about 45% of the companies in the Russell 2000 uh, that don't have profits. Hmm. Um, those are very long-duration companies. Those get particularly hurt by an in- increase in long-term interest rates. And I have to say, I- I'm also very worried about the refinancing of the federal government, hmm. uh, which has benefited greatly from very low net interest costs because of quantitative easing. That's about to reset, which is going to, in my opinion, keep interest rates higher for longer. That's going to put pressure on the lower quality, higher, longer duration stocks. Can I bring Rick in for one sec? We just had, got a bond auction. It did not go well. Uh, Rick Santelli watching this. It's seven year. We don't usually talk about it, Rick. But when I'm seeing what a D you're giving it, what happened? Yeah, D is in dog. Demand was not there. It tailed about two basis points. We're talking 35 billion seven-year notes, Kelly. Uh, the Dutch yield at the auction was 4.062. The when issued market was trading 4.047. So we could clearly see that it tailed. And when it tails, pricing is a huge uh, part of the grading process. All the metrics except for one were below 10 auction average. Direct bidders was a little bit stronger. Uh, considering this morning's numbers, we did see, of course, the core PCE higher than many expected. But when you take that as a revision and look at the last final uh, read for the previous quarter, the third quarter, we're still making progress on these numbers, but much too slowly and much different than expectations. And it certainly seems as though, despite the fact that we spent a lot of time in positive territory today with respect to the price of treasuries, meaning yields for the most part have been lower, we continually see that investors at this series of auctions, the fives and the sevens have not gone very well. And it might be a new symptom of some of the nervousness regarding the more aggressive tone of the Fed. Yeah, I mean, why lock it up for five or seven years when you can get it in six month bills or maybe you don't want the default risk? Okay, you get it in one year. Steve, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to push back a little bit on Jason and, and actually I'm interested more in his thinking on this because Jason's one of the great macro thinkers, but at the end of the day, he, he runs money. So he sees profits coming down and that's bad for the economy. I would just throw out, Jason, 
corporate profits as a percentage of GDP, the corporate profit margin has been at an all-time high. It remains high, even with this expected decline. There is scope for some of that profit to go to workers and that not be a recession, even though it's bad for stocks, which I know is your focus. So I just don't want to over-extrapolate this decline that I think is worthy or, or maybe even worthwhile in that workers get a little... They, who is it? Jamie said today, Jamie Dimon, workers haven't gotten a pay raise in 20 years. Yeah, it's, so it's time. No, listen, if you look at the GDP numbers and you look at profits as a percentage of GDP and you look at corporate uh, at labor or wages as a percentage of GDP, it's uh, there's a big yawning gap uh, that suggests that labor is due uh, for uh, pay increases and clearly the tightness in the labor market. I think it's hard you know, by the same by one token, it's very hard to call for a recession when unemployment claims continue to be below 200,000. Uh, by the by the other token, I would say companies, if their corporate if their margins start to decline, that tends to be a pretty good leading indicator. Uh, of layoffs. Well, let's put it this way. We all want the story to be, okay, income's going to workers and they're going to keep this whole thing going. But there's just not a precedent for that. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, it's just that there are going to be probably fewer workers. That, that's the, the workers that are able to stay employed in those high-quality companies are going to be doing better. If I could just interject, the, 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 the spiral that Jason's talking about is a bad one. I agree with that, that it ends up cutting CapEx. CapEx ends up reducing future productivity, and he ended up cutting jobs as well. So all those things end up being bad for the economy. But do they have to defend the 13 or the 12 percent uh, corporate profit margin, or can they live in a normal environment with 10 or 11 or even 8, which it used to be? And uh, comment on that. I also want you to respond, and Mark, I'm bringing you back in, but financials. You know, you hear a case for that. You think, I mean, and look, parts of the financials have done incredibly well, like insurers who are exposed to higher rates are benefiting from that. But what about the banks? So the hard part is that they call it the deposit beta, is that the, the speed at which the Fed is increasing interest rates is making it hard for banks to make money on a sustainable basis. Mm-hmm. If this happened more slowly, this would be a much better cycle we for banks. We heard this from Valley National the other day, by the way. He said, we're getting to the point where we can't lend things out at higher than what we have to pay on our deposits. So that's the that's the only and it certainly makes sense. And I, I certainly I we're market weight financials right now. We're not underweight. But that's the only thing that concerns me is that the speed at which the Fed has, has tightened is has shortened the cycle that would normally be there for financials. Mark, I'll turn to you. And maybe the, the kind of Goldilocks scenario here is that we're going to get February data before the next Fed meeting. Maybe things, cool, you know, cool back a little bit. It makes 25 more likely, you know, that we and we can kind of ratchet back the, the concern here. Um, what, what do you think? Have we put in the highs for this year, the lows for stocks? Sorry, Mark, go ahead. Listen, I think that whether it's 50 or 25, the point is we're going higher. I'm, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yep. Go ahead. Hello. OK, so, yeah, I said whether it's 25 or 50 basis points, I think the point is that we're going to go higher and I think we're going to go for longer uh, because of the data that the Fed's looking at. And it's going to continue to gonna continue to show. I mean, I don't see many, many companies falling off a cliff. We saw Walmart, Walmart's numbers today. Uh, they're still seeing a strong consumer. That's not what the Fed is looking to do. They're looking to slow this economy. They're looking to lower inflation by mandate. And so until they accomplish that, I, I think that you're going to see sectors like the financials, insurance companies that do well in that type of environment 
continue to rally and, and, and for the foreseeable future. All right, we got to go. But you know what I was thinking as I listened to all this is should, should the Fed officials make more of a point of saying we only talk about leading indicators? I mean, <laughs> they have to set policy on, on kind of the leading economy, right? I mean, they, they all talk about coincident and lagging indicators. See, we talk about this, you know, as if they're predictive somehow, and we know they're not. And are they sort of responsible for confusing the picture here? This is why this big argument for going by quarters, right, and not 50s, is because they could be making a mistake by looking at the wrong thing. They made a big mistake last time. I do want to tag this conversation with one thing, which is if Jamie doesn't have the recession playbook out, why has he increased uh, loss reserves by billions of dollars? True. I'm just a little bit confused by that. Can anybody answer Weakening that question? consumer, but and, not and, a recession. And, and if that's not the recession playbook, does that mean there could be billions more? If there is a recession. True. I don't know if yeah. Jim has a chance to put that to him before the show tonight, Hope but it's a great point. Guys, thank you all. We'll leave it there. Steve Leisman, Jason Trenner, thank you for coming thank out you. on set here. And Mark Smith, always appreciate it. Don't miss Steve's exclusive interview with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, by the way, tomorrow on Squawk Box at 8 a.m. Is she a voting uh, member? She's not this year. Not. Okay. But we, that, she almost has more freedom maybe to set the, <laughs> set the tone. Coming up, natural gas prices have plunged since September. What's driving the decline? And when will relief finally show up in heating bills? Brian Sullivan is here with that story. Plus, whether you're buying a car online, watching your favorite show, making a payment, we've got you covered in today's edition of Earnings Exchange. Carvana, Block, Warner Brothers Discovery, all about to report. And as we head to break, here's a look at markets heading towards session lows again. Dow's down almost 200 points, half a percent for the NASDAQ. Ten-year, still at 390. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. It's been a record-breaking couple months for Nat Gas. The prices are down almost 80% since September. They went below two bucks a contract on Wednesday. Brian Sullivan is here with more. Now, we're saying it's mostly good news. What's the asterisk? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's good news for Europe. Get to that in a second. Uh, hi, everybody. Yeah, natural gas above two now, was below two. We were at nine last fall. You think about it. I mean, what's going on? All right, number one, supply-demand, right? Eco 101, it is too much gas. The weather, by the way, it's, what, 65 degrees here right. right now? It's 84 degrees in Richmond, Virginia, breaking the previous record by, I think, 9 degrees, according to AccuWeather. Warmest February ever in New York City. I'm not a meteorologist, nor do I play one on TV, but it goes 
to gas demand. No one's heating their home except like Minneapolis. So everyone's furious because they're like, why am I paying $800? And it's we, I've talked about California. We hear it in parts yep. of New York. It's it's sort of perverse that at the very moment the sp- futures or spot prices plunging, these utility bills are way up. What's going to happen? Normally, I mean, they have to go through. They have to ask for rate hikes. This was all happening over the summer. Will they come down very quickly now or not? Are are regulators going to kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, leave them up? Yeah, because utilities are really good at lowering prices all the time, right? I mean, they just want to get right on that. California's doing a rebate, $50. Yay, $50 rebate, right? Half a tank of gas. Okay, so why is your electric or heating bill up if you're on gas and gas is down? Number one, there's a lag. Okay, number two, the price we show on TV, that's the con, it's a paper contract. In Massachusetts, they have what's called CityGate. It's sort of the delivery price, what they use. It was at 18 last year. It's now down. So prices should come down, mm-hmm. but you're paying what they bought it for six months ago. So your, your heating bill's going up as we're saying, well, natural gas is going exactly. down. Exactly. So uh, probably the most important question for our audience, many of whom might have gotten really into energy last year, watching oil go up, watching nat gas, watching, yeah. you know, hearing about yeah. the energy crisis. I heard about that. It. Yeah, I heard about that too. Glad it didn't happen. The energy crisis, that is. The stocks have actually held up relatively well. I mean, if you look at a lot of the leading nat gas producers, let's call them, not a disaster. They're certainly not down 80%. What explains that? Well, because they're still going to make money. I mean, right? I mean, now the stocks, we'll see if they hold up. Right. I mean, a lot of nat gas bulls will tell you prices are on a dip because there's too much. We oversupplied. Freeport LNG was offline. We had all this inventory. They're going to have to start shutting in maybe wells, right? If you're a net gas bull, you're like, okay, Freeport's back online. That's the second biggest exporter. Maybe supply cutbacks coming. And, oh, by the way, the weather could change. Right, Again, exactly. not a meteorologist. It's Everyone's like, like everything's fine. It's going well, right? But then yeah. if it flips and all of a sudden what if we don't have what if, all of this. What if this, this hot winter turns into a super hot summer and now we're just cranking the air conditioning in New Jersey, New York, you know, even places like Denver, so right? we, you never know what could happen with the weather. And, and I always uh, pay attention to Brian Reynolds. We've had him on the show, eponymous research firm. He's not an energy specialist, but he has many times called these commodity moves correctly because he understands sort of the structural underpinning mm. of the markets. And he's saying the futures curve indicates nat gas prices won't go above five dollars until at least 2035. Wow. What if we I mean, if you, well, situation? listen, Brian, if you can make a prediction 12 years out, right. who's going to win 19, 2028 <laughs> he's, he's Kentucky predicting. Derby? He's saying the market I'll is so that. oversupplied that it almost looks like and, and he and others have said yeah. we've gone from shortages to gluts. Now this glut oversupplied based supply. on a lower demand curve. According to AccuWeather, 25 percent fewer heating days in America this year, particularly in the Northeast. Europe, Rome, 65 percent decline in heating days. So that's thank God Europe yeah. is literally being saved by the weather. People are coming at me saying, oh, you're reporting all these worst case scenarios. We didn't know what was going to happen with the weather. And it's good. What if it was super cold for months? They'd be in deep, deep doo-doo, I think is the term. And the scramble to raise inventories to forestall this was the most important thing. And by the way, they're paying for it. I want to be very clear on one point. Yes, Europe's got great energy storage, net gas. That's good news. Yay. However, they're still paying 15 U.S. dollars equivalent. We're paying two. They're borrowing money to subsidize industries and households. Don't be surprised if this energy problem, crisis, whatever, becomes a debt issue. I'll give you a n- random but interesting. I'll give you a number. Nine, $98 trillion in emerging markets debt, highest ever, right. 250% of GDP. Why do I bring that up? Because they're having to pay up for energy as well because Europe is taking the energy they would have bought. Great point. There could be sovereign debt issues 
a year from now because of what's happening. Now. It's a good thing the show's coming. What date? Thank you, by the way. Yes, we have a new show. Last Call is the name. Wednesday, March 8th. Wednesday, March 8th. 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, 5.30 in Denver. I don't know what they're on, Mountain Time, whatever that is. I don't think it's a half hour. Tune in. It's going to be a totally different thing. The show looks great. The anchor, I hope, holds up. I hear he's fabulous. Uh, he's, you know, he's loud. <laughs> Brian, thank you. Brian Thanks, Sullivan. Kelly. All right. Still ahead with U.S.-China tensions rising over the balloon saga, should investors be more concerned about the geopolitical risk or about the economic opportunities in Beijing right now? We'll dig into the divide with former Morgan Stanley Asia Chairman Stephen Roach. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Modest declines across the board here, but a lot of people watching these S&P levels, 39.79. You know how trends go. We can stay above 4,000. People feel more bullish. The longer we're below it, they're not going to feel that way. The Dow, for its part, is down half a percent. The Nasdaq down by a third percent. Now, Bumble's moving higher after guiding to full-year revenue above the street's expectations. Stock up about 5% and 16% year-to-date. CEO Whitney Wolf, uh, tell, Whitney Wolf Heard telling our Julia Borson she sees opportunities to expand their subscription offerings from the two-tier product by leveraging AI and machine learning for a more premium service. We'll see if that injects some more hype into the stock. Again, it's had a first uh, start to the year in its first positive quarter since going public two years ago. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Ozzy Media's CEO, Carlos Watson, is scheduled to be arraigned in Brooklyn federal court today after his arrest this morning on three fraud and identity theft charges. It follows a guilty plea in secret uh, to fraud charges by Samir Rao, the uh, former executive with whom he founded the startup. Many people know Carlos Watson. Watson's lawyer says he and his client are disappointed and shocked because they thought they were having a constructive dialogue with the government. The New York Times reported in 2021 that Rao had impersonated a YouTube executive during a fundraising phone call with Goldman Sachs, raising questions about the company's business practices. Also today, federal prosecutors have added four new fraud counts to their indictment on FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried concerning allegedly illegal campaign contributions. A source tells us if Bankman-Fried, Bankman-Fried that is, is convicted, the new counts could add 40 more years to his sentence. And federal regulators are warning U.S. banks about increased liquidity risks with deposits to related to cryptocurrencies. Kelly, back to you. Thank you, Tyler. I'll see you soon. Coming up, fintech, streaming, autos, three more big names reporting after the bell. And they're all up nearly, or double digits, I should say, this year. You can see the performance up from up 15% for Block. Carvana's nearly doubled. You know what a story that's been. Warner Brothers, same thing. Bit of a rebound there, 63% since Jan 1. We'll get the action, the story, and the trade on all three of these names next.
Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. Today we've got the action, the story, and the trade on Carvana, Block, and Warner Brothers Discovery. Let's get right to it, starting with Block, whose shares are up nearly 15% so far this year. That makes him the laggard of the group. Its payment systems have outshined competitors, but will the crypto winter hurt its bottom line? Let's ask Steve Kovac. He's here with the story. And Quint Tatro has our trades today. He's president of Jewel Financial. Welcome to you both. Steve, what's the read on Block? Yeah, let's talk about what's what to expect tonight, Kelly, with these block earnings. First of all, they performed a lot better than their fintech peers last quarter, showing uh, much more resilience as we saw companies like Affirm and Stripe in recent months lay off workers, cut costs and so forth. We're seeing gross profit grow at this company. So where is that happening? First of all, there's the cash app, which grew 51 percent on gross pro- profit last quarter. We're expecting to see more growth there. Just how much growth there is, is, is the big question there. And then there's also uh, the point of sale. That's the square business where you go up and swipe your card and check out. Uh, that business has been quite profitable on a gross profit margin, too. And and that's, that was up over uh, 29% last quarter. So we're expecting more growth there. And then finally, like you said, the crypto winter. We know Bitcoin is flirting right now with uh, 24,000. At the time, it was about 156 billion or million rather in Bitcoin on the balance sheet for Square. That's likely going to go up a bit. And that's why we go on a gross profit when we're looking at block as opposed to just the pure top line number because that Bitcoin volatility yeah. is a big question mark Interesting. there, Kelly. Quint, you like the stock? Yeah, Kelly, we're long the stock here, long from lower, which is nice. And we're going to hold through the report. And this is a name that, you know, we think can be a real leader into the future, assuming they continue to do the right things each quarter. But they're still 75 percent off 2021 highs. They've got a decent balance sheet. It's rich from a valuation standpoint, 42 times forward earnings. But their growth is attractive, 60 percent. So ultimately, we want to see what the company has to say about their quarter. Obviously, we want to see how free cash flow is how they're compounding book value. Uh, This is a name, as I mentioned, we're still long. We would be a buyer of pullbacks, uh, assuming the report is decent. Hmm. All right. Well, are you a buyer regardless, though? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, mean, we want to own this name over time and accumulate a position. Yeah. But I know you were saying a lot of people look at that forward PE and say, wow, but um, if you can get it any any lower than here, even better. All right. Let's move on. Thank you, Steve. We'll talk about Warner Brothers Discovery, whose shares are up 70 percent in the past couple months. All these stocks are rebounding after their Difficult 2022. CEO David Zaslav, is the turnaround strategy working? Julia Borston is here with that story. Julia? Well, there are a couple of key things we're watching here. And the first one is the question of cost cuts and his whole effort to deal with the company's debt. Now, David Zaslav has done meaningful cuts already. I think there are going to be some questions on the call about whether there are more cuts coming and also what his strategy is going to be around content investment going forward. Second key area to watch the ad market and macro pressures on the company. This is a company that's already seen advertising declines in the third quarter. The question is how much we will see ad pressures continue into the fourth quarter and what his outlook is for the ad market over the rest of this year. And then the third area to watch is streaming. This is a company that's really uh, focused on growing its streaming business and combining the Discovery and the HBO Max streaming business. We're looking for some insight onto when that's going to happen, what that's going to look like, how much that combined bundle is going to cost. And in the meantime, we're expecting the company to add about one and a half million streaming subscribers. So some focus there as well, as well as sort of the 
roadmap on what's next for the streaming business. As yeah. David Zaslav has said, he also wants to protect the theatrical movie business. Kelly. Absolutely, Julia. Thank you, Quint. People are looking at that 135 forward PE. And I don't even know if that's exactly right because a $15 stock implies the, the question is going to be about profitability, period. And that's been plaguing this company since creation. Yeah, this is interesting because it's got a tangible book value of 20. The stock's trading at 15. Hmm. The turnaround so far is is working uh, and the stock is is showing that. But we've missed this. We've just missed it. We, we thought it was a good opportunity when it was trading lower. We waited. We waited for a pullback that never came. Now I just can't chase this name here. I, I really now have to watch quarter by quarter. Still a tremendous amount of debt, but they also have two billion on the on the balance sheet. So uh, it's not for me here. I'm going to hold off, but hopefully uh, there's a better opportunity in the future. Yeah, and maybe to those who did get in, you know, when it was single digits, you're thinking maybe now's the time to take those profits. For sure, that's what I would definitely be doing here. All right, we'll see, Julia. As I mentioned, we appreciate it, and we'll turn to Carvana, the last one of the bunch today. It's had a monster run so far this year, but man. What a couple of years it had before that. There are a few things to consider about the fact that we've doubled since Jan 1. Short interest is 61% of the float. It's nearly 94% off of its weekly high of 52-week uh, high of 107. I think it was even much higher before that. Anyway, Philibo, you tell us the story here. What are people expecting in this report? Kelly, two things that will get a lot of attention. There is the part of the business in terms of how much it is leveraged, how much debt it has acquired. Remember, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of them buying the Odessa online auction site. And when they did, it cost them $2.2 billion, added a lot of leverage there. That's one of the primary reasons the stock was under so much pressure last year. So they are expected to report a loss of $2.28. While the one part of the business is, or the story is the leverage, the other part is what's happening with the used car online retailing. And the easiest way to explain this to people of the pressure that Carvana faces is that last year, when used car prices were at record highs, Carvana bought a lot of vehicles. Well, what's happened to those used car prices since then? They have fallen off dramatically. So as Carvana has sold those vehicles, it hasn't been easy, easy to make money on those vehicles. Not, you don't have to be a rocket scientist here, uh, Kelly. You buy high, you sell low, you're going to take some losses there. So those are the two parts of the business that are going to get the most attention. Yeah, good. Excellent breakdown. And Carvana, there's the long-term chart there. Over $300, Quint, uh, November of 21, and uh, under 10 now. Would you buy it? No, absolutely not. This is uh, our third time talking about this stock. Each time I say the same thing, and then the very next day or shortly after an announcement that they're not going out of business, the stock has a huge short squeeze and then ultimately falls and continues to go lower and lower. These are the two numbers you need to know. Basically, they're set to lose over $7 a share this year. Wow. And they only have $4.42 in cash. They have a tremendous already debt on the balance sheet. I, I just I can't in good conscience be a buyer of this name, whether it's a short squeeze trade or not. It's not for me. All right. Fair enough. Quint Tatro, Phil LeBeau. Great stuff today, guys. Thank you. All of three of those companies on tap with results. Coming up, $100 million in business, a luxury California retreat. All signs your job's going great, but maybe not if you're a mortgage banker at Wells Fargo. We'll explain next. Welcome back. Mortgage rates up to 9% over the past two months after taking a breather from the fall highs. 682 you can see there today in terms of percent. Now it's taking a big bite out of loan demand. Applications falling to their lowest levels since 1995 last week. 
and that's impacted the lenders. Wells Fargo, once one of the largest originators, is undergoing a huge structural shift away from mortgages. And in a new piece, CNBC.com banking reporter Hugh Sun reports Wells is laying off hundreds of bankers, including some top producers. He's here to discuss. And I mean, we're talking, why why would they lay off their best, best, best? You know, at first blush, it makes no sense. These are the kinds of people you would fight to retain. These are some of your best producers. And in fact, some of the people that they let go were recently attending this month, uh, one of their sales, internal sales conferences in the West Coast, where they're doing the very thing uh, that they should be doing, which is getting recognition, uh, you know, uh, getting to network, that type of thing. Uh, so it is unusual. Uh, I would say that because, um, you know, they t- you mentioned the structural shift, they're pulling back from areas where they don't have a branch footprint. That's, that's the mandate from up above. Hmm. That's the thing that Charlie Scharf has decided to do. So they're executing the thing that they, you know, said last month, and we broke that story, uh, and a decision they made many months ago. Now, you know, in today, with, the, with life today's rates, maybe that decision might look good, but certainly it causes some really strange uh, occurrences. What do you mean by the fact that they're leaving areas where they are, there's not like a branch footprint? Does that mean that people yeah. are being laid off based on where they live? That's exactly it. And, uh, you know, people who reached out to me said, uh, you know, I'm a great producer. If I was 20 miles to the south or 25 miles to the north, I would still have a job today, but I wow. don't. Uh, so the, the MO is, you know, entire teams are getting let go because they exist outside of the uh, Wells Fargo branch footprint, which is extensive, by the way, but isn't everywhere. And so there are pockets of the country, uh, regions where, you know, the, you know, Wells Fargo has decided we're not necessarily going to play there. Now, Wells Fargo, to be clear, is very, you know, and their official stance is we're still going to uh, cover the entire nation. We're just mm. going to do it from a centralized call center, mm. which, you know, arguably is not as, you know, great service. potentially. Right. So if they're serious about pulling back from the mortgage business to this extent, where are they doubling down, if anywhere? Yeah. So Charlie Scharf has made it clear. Credit cards, uh, you know, investment banking, commercial banking, uh, you know, wealth management like everybody else. So in a sense, he's, it's going to be sort of me too. It's going to be looking like, well, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, looking like Bank of America, because those are the guys that are winning in today's marketplace. That model is winning today, not a, mar- a model that's over leveraged to a boom and bust uh, industry like mortgages. It's crazy. Uh, Hugh, we appreciate it. For more details, you can read Hugh's piece on CNBC.com. That's our Hugh Sun. Still ahead, the great China debate. The country's reopening has foreign policy experts and Wall Street divided over the top issues. We'll look at each side's concerns and what it means for your money. That's next. They see a window of opportunity for equity markets to rebound. Let's go to work. down to the opening bell. The most important hour of trading starts right now. Where do you want to be in a still cautious and uncertain environment?
Welcome back. Concerns about China's reopening are boiling down to economics and imperialism. And it's quite a divide between Wall Street and Washington on this one. Seema Modi is here with the issues that both are highlighting. Yeah, exactly, Kelly. Policy experts at the Council on Foreign Relations shared grave concerns about China during a key meeting last week. This prospect of an invasion of Taiwan to the alleged spy balloon and the impact on business ties with American companies was high on the agenda. Stephen Roach, the former head of Morgan Stanley Asia, saying U.S.-China relations have reached, quote, a crisis point. Yet on Wall Street, the mood could not be more optimistic. Goldman Sachs pointing to mobility data, including highway traffic and subway usage across China now above pre-COVID levels and the default rate for the country property sector falling in recent weeks. Goldman's head of EM Cross Asset Strategy, Cesar Masri, telling CNBC the story around China is moving from the reopening to recovery. He's betting on earnings and not valuation to drive the next leg of growth. Case in point, Alibaba today with a massive earnings beat, the stock up about 60 percent from its recent lows. Masri also expects policymakers to double down on a pro-growth tone in upcoming meetings, including China's annual development Form and the National People's Congress in March. So clearly a divide when you talk to foreign policy pros and investors on China, Kelly. You know, at some point, if let's put it this way, if Washington were to signal or say that they didn't want, you know, there to be this kind of investment relationship, this business relationship. I mean, we had Wyndham on last week, the CEO, maybe earlier this week, and they're mm-hmm. China's a big growth story for them. You know, so. I could understand that the geopolitics of it, people are worried, but I'm not sure what business uh, people and investors are supposed to do in the meantime, other than try to do what they do everywhere, figure out, okay, well, what's growth right now and where are the earnings opportunities? It was an interesting conversation I had with Tenio Intelligence. They said that growth is a prerequisite to really care about the foreign policy and geopolitical risks. And I think right now the U.S. considers China a strategic competitor. But to your point, if things get even worse, uh, the question is, do investors continue to overlook these geopolitical concerns? These meetings coming up in the next few weeks could provide some level of intel as to how Chinese leaders are not only thinking about growth, growth inside the country, but also the relationship with the United States. And if we see that meeting that Secretary Blinken was supposed to have uh, with Chinese leaders in China, he then postponed it because of the spy balloon. If that gets back on the agenda, that will be important, too. Almost a catalyst, really. All right, Seema, thank you. We appreciate it. As she just mentioned, let's bring in Stephen Roach, senior fellow at Yale University, former chairman at Morgan Stanley Asia and author of the book Accidental Conflict, America, China and the Clash of False Narratives. Congrats on the book, Stephen. Good to see you again. Uh, last time we saw you a month ago, you said you've never been more bearish on China. So how would you kind of weigh in on this debate? Well, there certainly are cross currents. I think the investment community, as you framed it, you know, wants to believe in the post-lockdown, post-zero COVID snapback, uh, which, which is certainly um, in the process of unfolding right now. The questions I have is... Uh, you know, what happens after the snapback. And my concerns about China, which are fairly new for me because I've been an optimist on China for so long, is that the medium to longer term growth trajectory is going to fall well short of uh, what we're used to and what China is used to. And, you know, that reflects the tough demographics, which are playing out as expected, but much sooner uh, than uh, we had thought in conjunction with a really tough uh, productivity uh, outlook, given the regulations um, that have been put on the tech sector and the shift in emphasis to low productivity state-owned enterprises. So, you know, we know from economics, if if your uh, population, your working age population is shrinking, 
you've got to boost your productivity growth to offset it to achieve your growth target. And for China, it's going the other way. Right. So let me quote what Steve Weiss said in halftime last hour. They were talking about Alibaba. He said, I'd be a seller of Alibaba. I don't know why anyone would want to own a Chinese stock here. Geopolitical tensions are in flames. You can't trust the accounting. I'd be a seller of all the Chinese stocks. Would you agree with that? Well, look, his, his point is um, too extreme for me, but I, I do worry a lot about uh, the sharp deterioration in the relationship between the U.S. and China. You know, in the last five years, we've <clears throat> gone, Kelly, from a trade war to a tech war to the early stages of a new Cold War. You know, in just the last couple of weeks, we've had, you know, the surveillance balloon slash airship, if you want to really be accurate, uh, mounting pressures on Taiwan. And just, you know, in the last 24 hours, um, the U.S. is um, uh, starting to uh, indicate that it's going to release hard evidence that China is providing, quote, lethal support to Russia's military effort uh, in uh, Ukraine. And, you know, these are... Um, I think potentially very inflammatory allegations that uh, will take a, uh, a conflict from that's already tough from bad to worse. So I, I just want to highlight what you said. You said we've gone from a trade war to a tech war to sort of a new cold, a cold war. war. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and what is that? Where does where do we go from there? Because it doesn't sound like a great trajectory to be on. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not. I mean, you know, the risk of a cold war, as we learned, you know, in the, uh, the 60s, is that... Um, you know, there's always a possibility that it, it could uh, uh, inadvertently turn hot. You know, we've had this uh, significant escalation uh, of conflict uh, between the U.S. And, and China. My book argues that it's it's based on a lot of false premises or false narratives that reflect uh, deep misunderstandings that each nation has with respect to other. But but you know, irrespective of the uh, the, the cause and effect. We are where we are. And so when you have uh, these uh, this, this escalation that is the best image I have is like the high octane fuel of uh, conflict escalation. It can be ignited by the slightest spark. And, you know, in the 60s, we had, you know, the Berlin crisis. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came close. You know, Cold Wars are dangerous. Uh, and yet the Chinese... Um, uh, economy and what could we, uh, Stephen, just with the last couple seconds here, is there any? What can we do now if we don't want to keep going down this path? Should we, do we need to be more realistic and hardline about it, given the risks, or, or is there some way to soften no, it? Or? I, my, read my book. I mean, I, I'm, I'm being facetious here, but <laughs> I argue for a relationship solution, uh, not uh, you know uh, beating. Uh, the drum of uh, hardline conflict. We are not going to force China to, to do it our way, and China's not going to force us to do it our way. We have to come up with a mutual framework to engage one another. Are investors yeah. helping on that front? If they, you know, the ones cross investment, that kind of thing, business, I mentioned Wyndham, people opening, doing business there? No, I, I, I would like to see uh, more, um, more support, a more vocal um clamoring for uh, a, a more collaborative engagement between the two nations and the business community can play an important role in that. But thus far, their silence has been deafening.
Interesting. All right, Stephen Roach, thanks for all your time today. Good to check in with you again. Read the book, as he mentioned. And if you thought uh, returning to the office was bad, by the way, wait till you hear Google's latest plans for some employees as they cut costs. It's coming up in Power Lunch. There's Ty getting ready. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 